David Ferrier's books include Footprints in the Search of Future Fossils and Anthropocene Poetics. Footprints won the Royal Society of Literature's Giles St. Aubin Award and has been translated into nine languages. He is Professor of Literature and the Environment at the University of Edinburgh. David Ferrier, welcome to One Planet Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You're going to read to us from Footprints in Search of Future Fossils. Could you just set up the passage you're going to share? Yeah, of course. So Footprints is about what traces are going to be left of us in the deep future, what material legacies we're going to leave to future generations. And one of the most long-lived materials that we have ever produced, of course, is nuclear waste. And it's been a problem for many decades. How do we deal with this material safely? How do we store it in such a way that future generations won't inadvertently trespass on the repositories out of curiosity or a misguided sense that what's stored there is valuable, precious treasure in the way that in the past humans have always been curious about what their ancestors chose to mark and to bury. And there are various different strategies for keeping this material state that I explore in the book, but one in particular involves a project in Finland where they're planning to bury 120 years worth of nuclear waste in five kilometers of tunnels carved 450 meters deep in the bedrock. I was fortunate enough to visit this repository. It's called Onkelo, which means a kind of warren or a burrow, a place that an animal will find shelter. I was fortunate to visit the tunnels to go deep into the bedrock, half a kilometer down, and to see one of the deposition tunnels where they'll store the nuclear waste and keep it safe. The curious thing about Onkelo is that there is no plan to mark it at the surface. They don't trust to myth, they don't trust to language, they don't trust to art or architecture to convey a message that has to remain legible for 10,000 years or more. And so their plan is just to cover it over and let nature hide the location effectively. So I'm going to read about what it was like to visit the deposition tunnels, to stand in that place and imagine what it was like, what it would be like rather for a future visitor to break in and to stand there. Um, and one detail that I need to explain before I read is a, a reference to the Finnish epic poem, the Kalevala, which was very much on my mind as I was visiting Onkelo. And the episode in particular tells of how the blacksmith Ilmarinen agreed to forge an object called the Sampo, a wonderful and mysterious item in return for marrying the daughter of Luhi, the mistress of the dark Northland. Ilmarinen labors day and night without success, but on his fourth attempt, he finally succeeds and delivers the Sampo to Luhi, who buries it in a copper seam nine fathoms deep in a hillside, secured behind nine unbreakable locks. The Kalevala does not say what the sample looked like or what it was for, other than that it was a source of great wealth. The only description given is in an alternative name for the sample, that is, the bright lid. Despite the clutter of construction materials, the only word I could think of to describe the tunnel was holy. This is where the final disposal of spent fuel rods will take place, a sanctuary set aside for the deep future. It was unexpectedly profoundly moving 
The disposal tunnels and access roads will be backfilled to the surface. But if anyone in 10,000 years time was tenacious enough to dig their way down here, this is what they would see. I felt jolted forwards in time, as if my own feelings suddenly mingled with the future visitor's rush of excitement. As the concrete seals were lifted and the gleam of the copper canisters caught the light again, after thousands of years of being buried upright in the dark, would they feel horror, exhilaration, or reverence? I could imagine their gasps echoing in the small tunnel as they raised the concrete seals to reveal the shining bright lid. Would the sandpokes still be remembered here? Might they even think they had discovered the source of the myth? I asked Passy if anything would be left in the tunnels before they were backfilled. He'll probably take anything of value, he replied, but it looked to me that much of what would be left down here would speak of the people who laid this vault in the earth. Not just the disposal chambers and their thousands of canisters, but the mesh and concrete coated walls, the deep score marks, the pipes that will carry hot water to the engineer's showers. When nothing of the road network remains above ground, the 42 kilometres of roads through Onkalo will still be here, backfilled but intact, with their smooth surfaces and arcane signs like the emergency exit markers with their running figures. I wondered whether a future intruder would read these as a warning to flee from unseen dangers or an encouragement, an invitation to hurry on through the door into the dark. Well, closing on a door into the dark, your book also is a door unto the light. In a strange, well, we consider our own extinction. It is also hopeful. And literature has brought you to this place of understanding. Your love of literature, did it come hand in hand with your appreciation of your environmental awareness? Or is that something that came later? Oh, yeah. I mean, I teach literature for a living. It's my job. And it's my way of understanding the world in many respects as well. So for me, thinking about these issues, thinking about what will be left of us and what future generations will think about us. And I'm not, in, in my book, I don't really think about human extinction, not in any imminent sense. I don't think that's a realistic prospect or any more than it has been since the invention of nuclear weapons, shall we say. But that I don't think is the primary thing that need concern us right now. It's our effect on, on the living world. But when I come to think about these issues, I think about them as stories. In Footprints, as I said, I'm concerned with what will our traces be? What will be left of our cities? What will be left of our plastic? What will be left of biodiversity or of icy landscapes? What will the outline of our continents look like? All of these things for me are stories that we are telling to the deep future about what we value, about what action we took and what action we declined to take in order to sort of hand on a living, a livable world, a livable planet to future generations. So literature is fundamental to that really. Literature is um, stories, poetry, song, all of this, I think is fundamental to thinking about what kind of story we want to tell to future generations. I struggle with my conscience. Sometimes I find it very soothing to read the environmental humanities and lyric poetry and these things that help us understand. And then sometimes I wonder, is it 
another way of distracting us from our purpose. I'm only saying because I've just come out of an interview with Bertrand Picard and he's a very spiritual uh, and his solar impulse fight, but he's all about we have to be realist because we only have so much time left. Yeah, that's always a danger that we're, you know, with ourselves or comfort ourselves in a way that defers up necessary action that delays fatally. And certainly aware that there's a kind of environmental writing that just turns its gaze away from the difficult situations. But I think there's a place for wonder. Nonetheless, I think we need that to motivate us, but I think that needs to be held in balance with a clear eyed appreciation of quite where we are and what time it is, how late it is. It's a function of hope, I think that we are honest with ourselves. Hope is a curious thing. I think some people have difficulty with idea of hope that we should, perhaps we shouldn't be hopeful. We should be determined or there are various alternatives posed. But I think for me, hope is a curious condition of seeing the present for what it is, but recognizing the future for what it could be and holding those two things together, that we're not on the path we would want to be, but that path still may lie open. And I think literature that could help us to hold those two things in tension has its place, has an important role to play. Stories that help us to feel wonder and to have a sense of a future that is not wholly foreclosed, but is also fully aware of and acknowledges the damage we've done, how late we've left it and so on. Yes. And you also make your students really look this in the eye. You talked about nuclear sites or considering the coral reefs, many things. You are encouraging this clear-eyed focus as well. Yeah, I hope so. You always set out to write something with an idea in mind of what you want to say, but it's really up to the reader to, <laughs> to affirm or not whether you've actually said it or said it well. Exactly. And on the point of imagination, I also speak as an artist and we can't create a future, as they say, we can't imagine it. We have to first create a picture of it that we can move towards it. And on this point, a recent UN assessment report has just come out, if you've seen it, that humans need to value nature as well as profits to survive, which you address in your books and writings. The review highlights, as your writing does, four general perspectives that should be taken into account. Living from nature, providing us with our needs like food and material goods, living with nature, which is the right of non-human life to survive, and living in nature, which refers to people's right to a sense of place and identity, and living as nature, which treats the world as a spiritual part of a human being. So how do you consider these four aspects? I think for a long time, we've considered that nature is one of only two things. And this has been said many times before, it's either a tap or a sink. It's a resource or it's waste. And we need to get away from that. We need to get away from that reductive and it's instrumental extractive mentality. Part of doing that, I think, is adopting a much larger temporal perspective, thinking not just about our immediate needs or desires, thinking about the present of consumption, but thinking about how our actions play out over multiple generations, who will have to live with the consequence of these decisions. So I think we need to stretch our sense of time and within that stretch our sense of empathy 
the philosopher Roman Kuznarich talks about that in his book, The Good Ancestor, that we need a more elastic sense of empathy that can en encompass not just those close to us or living alongside us, but those who have yet to be born, will have to, will inherit the world that we passed down to them. But I think in stretching that sense of empathy and stretching that sense of the times that we touch, if you like, because all of us are engaged in activities that will leave long legacies, long tales in terms of the fossil fuels we're consuming and so on. Alongside that, I think we need to accept that the time we live in is a strange one and time itself is doing strange things in the Anthropocene, that our experience of climate change is running to a different speed. And when I say it, people like me in the Northern hemisphere, in countries where for various reasons, we are protected from some of the worst effects currently playing out. We're experiencing the time of the climate change, of the climate crisis differently to people who are living in parts of Bangladesh or India, or even in a developed city, like a very rich city, like Sydney, that's flooding or burning, it seems at any given point. The future is arriving much more rapidly there than it is here. And so time is doing strange things. And I think it, we need to appreciate that as well, that our mechanistic clock-based sense of time is not really serving us very well anymore. Our sense that time plays out equally everywhere. In fact, some people alive today have a lot less time available to them to adapt to the world to come than other. And that kind of injustice, I think, needs to be recognized and to do that, we need to think differently about time. So to get away from that very instrumental extractive attitude that treats nature as this kind of eternal, unchanging resource that we can withdraw from or kind of deposit our waste in, we need to think differently about time. We need to think differently about how we are connected in time to those who live in different parts of the world or those who are yet to be born, I think. As you say, people in different parts of the world are experiencing climate change much quicker. It's really on their doorstep much more. And I don't know how up to date this statistic is, but we'll see 10,000 years of environmental change in 50 years. I don't know how that compares with the global north or the global south. Mm. It's hard to take that in. Yeah, it is. Yes, it's something like that. And it is an astonishing thought that human action is forcing kind of natural processes to accelerate at such pace when we're experiencing a heat wave yeah, in the UK, we've got a week of very warm, actually quite pleasant weather, unusual for Scotland, I have to say where I am, and that can be enjoyed for five, six, seven days, and then it will pass and it becomes absorbed once it's over, it becomes absorbed into our sense of the everyday, but it's also at a different scale, part of this acceleration a disordering of planetary processes. And that's one of the difficulties of getting a handle on a kind of narrative around climate change and the climate emergency is it constantly evades us. It's playing out on scales we aren't used to think with. So it's a challenge. It's a challenge. I think that's one of, one of the things I wanted to do with Footprints was to give people points of access or things they could get a handle on. If you can think about everyday materials, everyday objects as objects that will outlast us by hundreds of thousands of years in some cases, then that gives us a purchase on this very different sense of time.
it's really hard to think about it, thinking of ourselves or what our fossil traces will be. The trail of plastics, the trail of which I guess outweighs us now, that our man-made objects outweighs all the natural life on earth. What our roads will tell those in the future about us. To start with, I wasn't going to think about roads. I wasn't going to, it was a chapter that I decided to add after really I had a whole plan for the book, although I ended up beginning with it, beginning the whole book with this, because it occurred to me that it's infrastructure. These roads that we take for granted, that we barely even see when we're using them. I tell such a profound story about the kind of world that we've made, that we have a kind of network spanning the planet of these kind of thin gray strips. And that only a fraction will persist into the, in the fossil record, maybe 1%. But I think the, the sameness of these fragments will tell a story of global connectivity of a species that was able to draw the continents together, to kind of beat geological time in that sense. The continents haven't been a kind of single mass for hundreds of millions of years, but we've kind of made a, a new pangate, a new global supercontinent by the fact that we can transport materials across oceans, that we can build the same kinds of cities using the same materials, largely the same design really on every continent, pretty much every continent apart from Antarctica. And the roads that connect them tell a story about how this was achieved, about how we could transport materials, how we could take stone from one continent and build a city out of it on another one. And so these fragments, I think, will tell a story of how we became a species that could act on geological scales, that could do things to the planet that no species has ever been able to do, that could almost act as if the oceans weren't there, as if distance wasn't an issue. We kind of stitch these things together to suit our needs. So the roads tell a kind of remarkable story, I think, of how we have made a human planet. If we think about the fragments that we will leave behind after the Anthropocene, like the roads, and you imagine this future where people are discovering what we have left behind, what aspects of our world specifically do you think they will be able to interpret? And how do you think they will understand how we lived and how we altered the Earth? Well, it depends on a number of things, I think. For one, it depends on the kind of the persistence of disciplines like geology and chemistry, so that they can interpret these traces in the way that today we interpret traces of past geological ages or fossil. So presuming upon that, there's a great deal that they could tell. And an incredibly precise story that they could build up about what it was like to live in the 21st century. That, like I said, we could take material from one continent and build a city out of it elsewhere, that we weren't bound by time or space in that sense. But even if that kind of insight isn't available anymore, for whatever reason, say humans lose touch with the disciplines like geology, chemistry, and so on, can't interpret in that degree. If they were to discover that the fossil traces of one of our mega cities, the precise nature of some of the fossils I think that we'll leave will tell incredibly detailed stories about us. I mean, imagine say 10 million years from now, a city that was buried by rising seas and kind of sank tens of meters beneath the surface is slowly raised by geological uplift and this cliff is exposed and in the cliff is this strata where once a city say like a kind of shopping mall in that city was. In there, you've got the precise fossil outlines of shoes, hats, neoprene wetsuits. And neoprene is an incredibly durable material. If a wetsuit, a neoprene wetsuit gets 
fossilized. It's gonna, <laughs> it's gonna leave the outline of an entire human shape. Pens, mobile phones, laptops, bicycles, chairs, knives and forks, or chopsticks, or plates, pans, you know, all the, the incredible diversity of materials that are there. And they may not be able to interpret the, or to determine the use of every single one, but what they will know is that we were an incredibly ingenious society able to invent a whole host of different shapes and forms and objects to suit our needs. Alongside that, they might realize that for all that ingenuity, we didn't manage to come up with a way to stop the sea from rising and swallowing that particular city. And so a picture of kind of not just our ingenuity, but perhaps our hubris as well might come out of that. But I think it's the everydayness, and that's one of the things I've tried to express in footprints. It's the everydayness of the traces that we're leaving. We think about the deep future as distant and what we talked about happening on a scale that that sort of it's hard to comprehend, but really it's in our everyday interactions that we're actually connecting with this deep future. The plastic bottle, that, that object that we're all now told to despise, that plastic bottle also connects us in many ways to the distant future. Yes. And as you consider this deep time, and I do want to go a little bit into your other writings and sacrifice zones and just to understand that what thick time is, but as you consider our relationship to that, our memory, you must also be reflecting on the experience of animals. It often confused me why some people make the assumption that animals have no conception of their own death. I feel like it must be that they're aware of it all the time. I think this is going back to the earlier question about the UN points about how do we reconnect with nature. I think appreciating that other creatures have their own ways of perceiving the world, their own ways of understanding life and reality. I think, again, stretching our empathy to include other species is really important as well. One of our perhaps most dramatic traces will be on the future fossil record of biodiversity. We're often said to be on the cusp of well, we certainly are on in the midst of an extinction event, whether it builds momentum enough to become the sixth great extinction, time will tell. Of course, we hope not. The project I'm working on at the moment, my next book, I hope will be about how the other kind of effect that we're having on biodiversity is through a kind of forcing of evolution, a forcing of speciation that those creatures who aren't succumbing to extinction are, are having to learn to live on a human planet by adapting their bodies, adapting their body shapes, their behaviors in ways that some, in some cases leading to the development of new species. And my interest is in how we can learn from that. The world is changing. Many creatures, many living things are, are having to change with it. And the question for me is, can we change as well? Can we look at that? Can we look at that incredible kind of natural genius, that capacity of an animal or a plant to reinvent itself, to reinvent how it gathers food at the timing of its key life events, the different kinds of ecosystems that it can inhabit. Can we look at that inventiveness and ingenuity and creativity and mimic it really, find ways to ourselves be more like those creatures that are learning to live on a human planet. And my hope is that in doing that, we can arrest some of the more dramatic changes that we can create a planet that is livable for all beings. Do you write about some of those adaptations or the loss of 
the sensory experience of uh, songbirds who, because of the ambient noise and in urban communities, uh, learning to sing louder, what's happening to humpback whales. And it's also been well publicized and some elephants becoming tuskless through natural selection or through those are the ones who are surviving to evolve. It's been said that humans are the primary kind of evolutionary force on the planet right now, whether it's through climate change, changing habitats, replacing rainforests with agricultural land, for example, or fragmenting habitats, hunting and harvesting, urbanization, pollution, all of these forces are acting on the natural world and in some cases creating pressures that force some species to adapt. Temperature is one really important driver of evolution. And as temperatures rise, it's changing the range that some species enjoy, and it's causing some species to encounter one another for their ranges to overlap in ways that haven't really happened before, or at least for a very long time, creating these kind of conflicts, but also as opportunities, new habitats are being formed by us. And for some species creates opportunities to thrive, to, or to adapt, to explore new ways of being. And this is not to put a sort of falsely positive spin on this. As I said, and this, we all agree we're in the midst of an extinction crisis, but I think we have to recognize that we're having other impacts on biodiversity, not just eliminating it, but also altering it, what it looks like, what constitutes it. And yeah, I think recognizing that is vital really. Yes, this is something you've been writing about, that we're living in an, a period of unnatural selection. I don't think there's been a time in the planet when one species has had the degree of influence that we've had on the range of influence on such a short time scale. We could look at the role that microbes played in oxygenating the earth and creating the conditions for multicellular life to thrive. And that's again, almost a unique contribution, I think, to the evolution of life on the part of a particular kind of living organism. But there's been nothing really like us in terms of shaping the rest of the biosphere through our actions. As I said, we've created a human planet, a planet that is increasingly organized to serve one particular species, us, and the rest of life has to work around that. But I feel that there are lessons to be learned in observing how the rest of life is doing that kind of work of adapting and learning to live on a human planet. Learning, I'd say, better than we are currently to live sustainably on a human planet. The way we're going at the moment, the future does not look very good and we need to adjust our course. And I think we can do a lot worse than looking at how animals are learning to adapt themselves, to thrive on a human planet, to create new pathways for life to follow. I'm Lila Moskowski, a student at Barnard College in New York City and a collaborator with the Creative Processes One Planet podcast. David Ferry's approach to discussing the Anthropocene through the lens of literature and storytelling is fascinating to me as it combines my interests in biology and English. I'm passionate about environmental advocacy and had never considered Professor Ferrier's perspective that humans have yet to learn how to sustainably live in the human world while other species have. This idea, however, 
particularly resonates with me because it provides reasoning for why humans have allowed the Earth to get to this point of mass extinction, and it highlights the idea that humans are not, in fact, the smartest or most adaptable species on the planet. The act of removing humans from the pedestal that we have placed ourselves on creates more possibility for change as we attempt to accept this notion, because it emphasizes our need to make a difference in our ways of living. Similarly, Professor Ferrier's book, Footprints, allows for an awareness of the impact that the human race is having on the planet, because it forces the reader to imagine the earth after us, as others attempt to reconcile with the damage that we have caused. I am intrigued by this kind of storytelling that creates an impetus to think about our planet's current state of crisis. It allows for a wider audience to more easily digest these concepts and to picture the possibility of our future. The concept of footprints is unlike other scientific literature as it relies on imagination to understand what the future might look like, and the difficulty in wrapping my head around these ideas is even more startling because it highlights the extent to which humans have forever altered the earth. As a biology major and an English minor, I hope to create similar work in the future that brings awareness of the Earth's current state of peril. Professor Ferrier's work is crucial to telling the stories of how humans have so drastically altered the planet and serves as an eye-opening call for change. And now, back to the interview. I did want to go back to the authors, the poets who have really helped you make sense of these new timeframes. I know you admire the work of Borges, Barth, Seamus Heaney. Just tell us what you find in their work and maybe how they help you make these imaginative leaps into the future. I think a poem is a wonderful device for challenging our sense of the real of the world around us and how things are connected in particular, whether it's through patterning of sounds or the arrangement of line breaks, poems are always suggesting to us new and perhaps un unconsidered ways in which seemingly unlike things can be drawn into relationship with one another, perhaps have always been in relationship that we haven't understood. And these relations, they can be tentative, they can be delicate, or they can be forceful robust, fundamental. But one of the problems, I think, again, and it stems from this habit of seeing the natural world as tap or sink, as, as resource or waste, is an unwillingness to appreciate the incredibly fast, complex scheme of relationships, web of relationships out of which the natural world is woven. And a poem can give us a glimpse of that by adapting its form, adapting its patterns of sound and music to draw things together, to draw different times together, to draw different living beings together or ideas together in ways that we perhaps haven't thought of before. And I think, again, in particular poems are very useful for challenging our sense of time. I spoke earlier about how I think we need to adopt a more expansive and elastic sense of time. And in Anthropocene Poetics, I talk about the thick time of lyric poetry, how a poem can bring many different times and time scales together. Or can help us to think about the planetary time alongside the time of a passing moment or time on a human scale, as if these things are totally at home together, which of course they are. We just haven't been taught to see that. So uh, yeah, I feel that poetry is vital for giving us these new frameworks, new tools for thinking about our place in the natural world. 
As you've talked about, the discipline of literature offers a new perspective on the Anthropocene, and it allows for the general public to engage with this period. Do you think that through literature there is a possibility to further spread awareness about the impact we have had on the planet? And do you think that there is any harm in learning about the Anthropocene solely through a literary perspective as opposed to in addition to a scientific perspective? I think it is important to be informed the facts. I've had to go quite far out of my comfort zone to write a, a lot of what I've written over the past several years. I've had to learn a lot. And that, I think that's been a privilege, but it's been hugely important as well, because I don't think an idea like the Anthropocene belongs to any one discipline, and it has a place in the humanities as much as it does in sciences. I think it's also a very charismatic idea, the Anthropocene, that gives it some value, that gets people's attention. But if we get hooked on the power of that idea without then taking the initiative and really learning about what's actually happening to our planet. I think, again, it's a kind of distraction and it might not be a kind of pacifying one. It's sort of distracting ourselves with a horror film, maybe rather than with a rom-com. But at the same time, I think writing that just leans into the kind of the lyrical or the sublime without grounding those effects in the science, I think it's probably risking something. So no, I think it's important to have both. Living in Scotland and the Scottish language, how has that influenced your imagination when you're thinking about the world? I live and work in Edinburgh, and Edinburgh is where the notion of deep time was first considered, conceived by the 18th century philosopher James Hutton, a philosopher and natural scientist, in his work, Theory of the Earth, where he first posited that we needed orders of time that previously hadn't been conceived by humanity in order to create the world, to create the landscapes that he saw around him. Hutton didn't put forward a particular age of the earth, but he basically, he disputed the biblical narratives that the world was created in seven days and was so many thousand years old and said, actually, the earth is sort of an inconceivable age. The great and most memorable quote comes at the end of this work, Theory of the Earth, when he says, we can see no vestige of a beginning, no prospect of an end. He created a secular notion of eternity, that the planet was just constantly raising mountains and grinding them down on this endless cycle. Geology has refined that understanding of natural processes. And we now know that the earth is around four and a half billion years old. But Hutton was the first to crack open that notion that time was just so much bigger than we had ever thought before. And if I look outside the window of the office I'm, I'm speaking to you from, I can see part of Arthur's seat in Salisbury Crags, which is an extinct volcano in the center of Edinburgh. And it includes one of the sites that Hutton used and visited in order to formulate this new idea. And so just being here in Scotland, in this part of Scotland, has been hugely impactful and shaped my sense of the Anthropocene, really, and our place in deep time. Yes. And I wonder, in terms of using your writing to influence public policy, I know you're doing a lot of public intellectual writing for newspapers and magazines. What do you feel your responsibilities are and how do you take on that mantle? 
I don't think literature is going to save us, if that's what you mean. And there isn't, uh, I wish there was, but there certainly isn't a kind of direct connection between writing an article or writing a book and changing politicians' minds. I wish there were, but it isn't that easy. Maybe if you're Rebecca Solnit or Elizabeth Colbert or someone of that stature, but I think what I hope for with my writing is what I think most writers hope for and probably always have hoped for, which is to be part of a conversation with readers. And even if that conversation is dispersed, that you're not in a room with them and it's perhaps unfolding over many years, they might not pick up a copy of your book for a long time, but still you're part of a conversation that's happening and just adding one new idea to the sort of ideas that are out there. That I think is all any writer hopes for. And yeah, that's my hope for my writing is that it's making some small contribution to the larger conversation. And you also convened the Edinburgh Environmental Humanities Network? Yes, I'll co-convene it. I'm one of a group of people who organize events here in Edinburgh around the environmental humanities, yes. Yes, tell us about it. Well, we have a range of different activities. We have a regular reading group and that during the pandemic has been a little bit more difficult to sustain, although and the people running it have done a wonderful job. And it's been an opportunity, I think, for people around the world, because we have quite an international network to connect regularly. But it hasn't been possible to meet in person very often. And I think it's something we've missed. I think all of us have missed that. And something we're looking forward to doing again, because it's important, I think, to have a sense of community, not just an international community, but a local community at home where we can meet and share ideas. And that is something the network is values very highly. We want to create a space, particularly for our students and for young researchers to get together and share ideas. We also host international visiting scholars. We have a couple of environmental humanities visiting scholars come every year for anywhere between three and six months to pursue research projects, to benefit from being in Edinburgh, to take part in the network. We try to sort of, you know, create a, a sense of community that's working on, on different levels, you know, kind of locally, but also internationally. And yeah, it's, the network has taken various different research interests at different times. To start with, we were very interested in deep time as an advocacy subject. We've had reading groups on Indigenous scholarship and how we as mostly white academics in our network in Scotland, working in the Northern Hemisphere can learn from and conscientiously engage with the work of Indigenous scholars without being appropriative, for example. We've had research events on the belief humanities and so on. So we try to cover a, a range of different topics and go where members' interests are. It's interesting with the number of interviews with Indigenous groups and this whole concept of intergenerational knowledge that, that again, that deep time that you're speaking of with the UN and Indigenous Youth Caucus. And they're discussing this concept that you think about seven generations, your grandparents, seven generations. And I don't know how many generations you can think back, but if we were to recenter our mind on this long time scale to really honor that and to make sure that we provide for future generations and honor those in the past, I think we would be able to live in greater harmony with our planet. I think so. Oh, yeah. Although we have to be careful as well. When I say we, those of us who aren't indigenous or who have 
part of settler societies or like we in the UK, former uh, colonial powers, that engagement with indigenous thinking doesn't become another kind of exploitation that writes is taking the good ideas, the things we like out and treating them as our role. It's a delicate process because there is so much of value and so much that I think can help all of us out of the difficulty that we're in indigenous cultures, but it has to be done with respect. It has to be done with a full acknowledgement, doesn't it? That there are histories of exploitation that haven't been fully addressed, that certainly haven't been atoned for. And yeah, that's something that I certainly feel that I have more work to do, a lot more work to do in that area to find that proper way of engaging with that scholarship that's respectful, but open. And it's sort of asking because your Scottish accent is very soft. Yes. Not a Scottish accent. That's what Not I, Scottish. That's what I was wondering. <laughs> you're British. British, yes. Yeah, I, I was wondering because sometimes people, yes, yeah, so that's why you say because if you're Scottish, Scottish, then you're, you've also been settled. So I was wondering about that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, in a way. No, I've lived in, I've lived in Edinburgh in Scotland for about 12 years now, but it's not where I was born. I'm part Irish. So that's why I'm curious about how the language shaped your imagination. You spoke about COVID and I don't know how that helped recenter you or notice things that you hadn't noticed having to be still and, and see things. I don't know how that might have influenced your writing and your perspective on time. Well, yes and no, because there are countless wonderful examples of writing about observing the natural world that does exhibit that stillness that slows down attention and gives us a model for how we might be more attentive. I'm thinking of anything from the work of a Scottish poet and essayist like Kathleen Jamie to an Inupiaq poet like DJ Nanukokpik, who I read with my students. We're not short of examples of writing that help us as we read them to slow down. But the practice, the process of writing is not like that at all. The practice of writing can be many different things. It can be exasperating. It can be exhilarating, but it's rarely that it rarely has that sense of pause. When you write, you're often working quite hard, sometimes productively, sometimes not. So I don't know, appearing behind the scenes of the act of writing. It's very different to what the finished work might appear like. And you're asking yourself all kinds of technical questions that really don't have a place in the finished work. Having spent a bit of today writing, I think I'm very keenly aware that it's very far from a kind of contemplative, idealized, reflective process. It's a lot more kind of furrowing the brow, punching over the keyboard. It wasn't so much that. I was just, stories have been shared with us by people we move so fast. And I guess that I thought that might relate to the stillness and the things that we could appreciate. I mean, if one looks at the good things, like a cinematographer related to me, he's filmed all over the world, huge films. It was the first time he had a chance to photograph his house. The light in his house, who knew? Yeah, yeah. So that, that going inwards. Yeah, well, writing a book like Footprint certainly made me look at my own every day in a new light. It became almost a kind of habit, really, to look at the most everyday object and to get that sense of it, a kind of aura of it as a potential future fossil. Anything that I might pick up in my kitchen, 
or an object I might use sitting on my desk or walking down a particular street and looking at the buildings. And it all had that sense of a wholly different time, just sitting there on the horizon, waiting to come into being through these objects, because they all have the potential to last in the future fossil record. And only a tiny proportion, of course, will, but there will be objects like the ones you and I use every day. So certainly writing footprints gave me that insight, if you like, into how anything that surrounds us, any made thing, any durable thing, anything plastic, anything concrete or steel or glass, even brick has the potential to persist long after we've disappeared and to tell a story about us. And that was interesting to carry that awareness around, I have to say. Speaking of man-made beauty or man-made waste, could you share with us your memories of the beauty and wonder of the natural world? And as you think about the future, what teachers or life lessons were important to you and what would you like young people to know, preserve and Well, I mentioned earlier that in Edinburgh, I feel fortunate to have a particularly acute or keen sense of deep time because of the history of the place. But the larger kind of landscape that Edinburgh sits in is very much kind of Anthropocene landscape. I find it really helpful to remember that because it gives me that sense of wonder that is also open to the, to the destruction, to the reality that I live very near the estuary and the further forth that opened where Edinburgh sits and that opens out to the North Sea. We'll often see oil rigs being towed out to the North Sea, to the North Sea oil fields, or containers coming the other way to petrol refinery and oil refinery that sits further down the river, a place called Grangemouth. We have many seabirds that live on our shores, and many of those seabirds, even though they're a wonderful spectacle, particularly in the evening, but we also know from scientific studies that many of those seabirds carry microplastics in their gullets. And so it's a landscape in which different orders of time, in which the wonder and the dark clouds of the Anthropocene are both present. And so I, I feel that it's helpful sometimes to go down into that landscape and to see both, to see how beautiful it is, but also to see how we have been shaping it and to see ourselves as so deeply connected to it in, in that sense. And it's the landscape that I have to take my students to as well. I, I teach a class on environmental poetry every year and always try to get my students out of the classroom at least once. And I take them on one of several walks around that area or either the North Sea coast or on the third or fourth coastline, the shoreline, I should say. And you asked what I learned from who influences me. I think the most important thing is to try to stay open to be influenced by my students. That for me, teaching is not a one way street. It's not simply a case of me saying, and I'm learning, but it's a case of kind of all of us together, working things out and building and understanding together. What we get from the course is something that we all put in. It's a collaboration. And I certainly feel that I learn a great deal from my students. I hope they learn as much from me as I learn from them. And I think that if I have anything that I would hope that young people, that students would take away, if they're listening to this, if they've got this far, well done, if you have, 
is that learning is a collaboration, is that we make knowledge together. That's true in every sense. That's true in a classroom. That's true in general life. And I think it's true for all species. I think animals learn about their world through their interaction with co-species as well. They know animals lives in isolation, really, that they make their worlds together. And I think we need to adopt that attitude as well, to recognize that we make our world together. We make our understanding of it together collaboratively and through cooperation. Yes. Well, that is a beautiful message of collaboration, one of speaking as well as listening, learning from each other, as well as animals and the natural world, which is, of course, nested within us as well. So I want to thank you, David Ferrier, for helping us consider our deep time, our future, and come to terms with the Anthropocene and the human imprints and impact on the earth so we can develop a counter vision and work collectively for a better tomorrow. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for bearing witness and adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you very much for having me. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Lila Muskowski with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Lila Muskowski. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. <laughs>